Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans 9. We are working our way through the book of Romans, and we're actually shifting gears as we get into chapter 9. Uh, Paul has been trying to describe to us a righteousness that comes through faith uh, apart from the law. That God has a, a comprehensive solution for all that sin has done, and, it's, and, and that solution is found in Christ, and it comes to you by grace. That is to say this, that sin left us guilty and condemned before God. And so Christ becomes the substitute that makes us pardoned for our sins, and we are clothed and covered in His righteousness before God. Sin left us corrupted and underneath its power enslaved to sin, and so Christ sends His Spirit to us to empower us to resist sin and put it to death with power from heaven through the resurrection of Jesus. And sin stained us and made us ashamed. We, we were outcasts. And so God adopted us and welcomed us into His family, accepted us to overwhelm the shame that was ours because of sin. And, and we've seen for the first eight chapters how the grace of God through Jesus is an answer to every problem of sin. But in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we're going to see Paul take up the idea of how God's grace has been at work in the world, and particularly a couple of questions that might come up in your head about the nature of grace and, and looking back at God's people and how God is still dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, the people of the world. Chapter 9 in particular there's a, a, a number of questions that are raised, objections, concerns. People might have, as they hear grace, and they say, does it really work? Well, Paul says the answer is yes. Yes, it works, and you can trust it. And so that, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to take us a few times. I'd really like to do one you know, 55-minute sermon on Romans 9, but I feel like most of you would not want that. And so uh, what we'll try to do is use a couple or three weeks to see what God says in Romans 9. Before we read, let's pray. Father in heaven, would you bless the time we spend in your word? Would you bless the reading of it? For uh, James tells us that to receive the implanted word, which is able to save us, would you bring salvation to us today through your word? And would you guide us as we reflect upon it and think about it? And Would you help us apply it? and be transformed because of this? Would you help us see Christ? And because we see Him and His greatness and, and indeed His awesomeness, be moved to trust in Him and to bow our knee to Him and to love Him as a great and mighty King. Father, we pray that You would open Your Word for us, that we might be nourished and well-fed in our souls, and that You would be pleased to meet the needs of Your church through Your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1, this is God's Word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And... To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, 
the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the child of the flesh, or the children of the flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is God's word. It is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. Uh, not that long ago, I heard uh, some news coming out of one of the seminaries that I like. Uh, I like a lot. And I knew some of the faculty and the administration there, and the news kind of disappointed me. It said that they were engaged in some pretty heated conflict between you know, faculty members and the administration and, and this whole group together. And it was particularly shocking to me because I remember hearing from one of my friends who's a professor there that what he loved most about teaching at that seminary was the unity they felt between the faculty uh, themselves and the faculty and the administration that they worked together well they had the same vision and it was really just a great place to be a professor and to hear that they had some pretty serious conflict and, and you know I think there's conflict everywhere you know there's always going to be little petty disagreements but this was serious stuff they had to hire uh, arbiters to come in and help them work out their differences people who would come in and offer counseling to try to help them reconcile peacemakers to the tune of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars uh, to bring restoration in, in those relationships. And uh, at least a couple of them left their jobs because of it. It was serious. And I remember thinking, you know, in my own seminary experience, I had seminary professors teaching me about conflict resolution and, you know, how to anticipate things like that and how to be godly in the midst of conflict. And here are these Godly men wrestling with each other and unable to resolve their differences. And I look at that and I think, you know, if it could happen to them, who's safe? We can see that on a maybe even a grander scale. All of us know perhaps someone who is involved in ministry, perhaps someone who's well-known, that we admired and, and trusted, who then dishonored the ministry by some immorality or failure and it sort of left a, a really bad taste in our mouths. And we look at that and we think this guy who, who had been so important in my life, who'd helped me so much, he falls and who's safe? Now, we've been reading in, in, the, in the book of Romans how we are really just ruined under sin. That, that, that we are guilty and condemned, that we are enslaved and, and corrupted by sin, and that the only hope we have 
is that God would act outside of us. That He would bring a grace that we didn't deserve, that He would give a gift, an undeserved gift. That's what grace means. And He would give that to us apart from our earning it, apart from our works of the law, that He would simply give the salvation that we need. And we see that He does it. For uh, most of five chapters, Paul is rehearsing over and over again this magnificent, overwhelming, powerful grace of God that's given to sinners and rescues them. And you might say, well, if, if God gives grace like that and it's always enough, the Old Testament bugs me. Because over and over I see those people who were supposed to be the recipients of that grace and they're, you know, routinely, it seems, provoking God to anger. They are always wandering away from the path that God had set them on. They seem to always be taking up the idols. And I, if I'm aware of my own weakness and my own sin, and I know what Paul said is right about the nature of sin in my own heart, and they weren't saved, who is? That, that's the question that, that Paul anticipates someone asking after what he said through, up to Romans 8. And in Romans 9, he's going to answer that question. And he wants you to be able to take confidence in the grace of God because his grace is always sufficient. And it wasn't like God was shortchanging Israel. It isn't that he didn't give them any good things. Look at the things he did give them. At verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them, the gifts of God, listen to these gifts, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. God gave the Israelites these special gifts. He gave them adoption. Now, we read about adoption in the New Testament, and it's particular to the individual, but we read about it in the Old Testament, and and there's also a sense of corporate adoption in addition to the individual. That is, God chose to treat the nation of Israel like a son. That's the language of the psalmist when he reflects on Exodus. I called my son out of Egypt. It was the description of Israel being brought out of slavery in Egypt. I called him out. It's my son. And there was a, a special place that God treated Israel like a son, more unlike he treated the other nations. They were privileged with adoption. They were privileged with glory. Now when we read the word glory, it has a, a real abstract quality to it. But for the Hebrews, they remember. They remember the, the day when this, it was called the Shekinah glory of God, a, a, a magnificent light descended into the tabernacle and rested over the ark. And then again in the, in the temple when it was built. It was the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and it was magnificent. God was with His people. And they remember when Moses on Mount Sinai said, God, let me see your glory. And God said, you couldn't handle the glory of God full on. I'll let you catch a glimpse as I pass by. And they knew this the glory that was represented in the temple and in the tabernacle were, were shadows of the real thing that was theirs. Because the, 
the priests were, were, were commanded to pronounce a blessing over and over and over again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord turn His face toward you and be gracious. Remember, Moses had to have the face turned away. They had this hope that God was going to turn His face toward them and be gracious. And then, to make His face shine upon you. That the glory of God would one day shine on these people and they would have not death, but shalom, peace, harmony, and health. That was, the, that was what they heard over and over again, that God was preparing them for the glory that they'd only glimpsed so far. It was theirs. They had the covenants. The covenants were binding relationships that God entered into with men, with Adam and Noah, with Abraham, Moses, and David on behalf of all of these Israelites. And we could look at each one. I want to look at just one as an example. In Genesis 17, Abraham is, is told by God, we're going to cut a covenant. That was the language they used because they took animals and they would cut the animals into two pieces and separate them and create a little walkway between these gory animals. And the parties of the covenant would walk through between those animals. And as they walked through, they were in essence saying this, if I don't keep the obligations of this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. But just at the point when everything was set, God prohibited Abraham from walking through. And God Himself passed through between those animals. And so God was saying, if I don't keep my obligations to this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And if, Abraham, you don't keep it, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And, and, and so there's this secure covenant that was being expanded and, and taught and renewed through not just Abraham, but Moses and David and, and others. That they saw God's binding relationship to them. That was the Israelites' blessing and privilege. And then the giving of the law. You remember on Mount Sinai, God Himself came down and they heard His voice preaching to them. They heard God preaching. Now, you should know that they didn't enjoy the sermon. <laughs> it says afterward that they were so terrified they asked Moses, you go talk to God for us. We're afraid to hear Him. And Moses said, that's good. But God gave them the commandments, in particular those ten commandments. And, and it was beautiful because those commandments reflect the nature of God. Israel had it. Israel had, in words, a mirror to the God's very character. The reason God wants you to uh, be faithful in your relationships, to not commit adultery, is because He's faithful in His relationships. The reason God wants you to not bear false witness to one another is because God is truthful and honest and trustworthy. You see, those Ten Commandments were His character. And it was meant so that they could recognize Him and know Him. More than that, the commandment came to Israel and exposed their need of God's grace. And while it's possible, apart from the commands, plenty of people lived in thinking because they would look around at others and say, well, I'm doing better than my neighbor. I'm a little nicer, I'm a little better, I'm a little more moral, and they could feel okay about themselves. 
But Israel had this special thing where they saw the law and it confronted every failure in their hearts. And you think that's, that's a blessing? It's a blessing. Think about how many times you've heard someone say this, we found the disease, we got it early, so we're going to be able to treat it. Whereas if you'd missed it for a long time, it had taken root and you might not be able to treat it. You see, Israel had the early detection. The law diagnosed their problem and said, you need rescue. And they knew it from the time they were little children. It was a blessing. And not just a blessing in, in kind of diagnosing their sin, it was also a direction of blessing. God gave His command. And He said, this is the way the world I have made works. If you will follow my commands, you'll find that there's blessing there. There's life in obeying these commands. God gave them this special privilege that didn't go to everyone else. They had worship. Some of your versions might read service. It's the temple service. It's where the priest would gather and they would do all the rituals that God commanded. They would offer the sacrifices and you, as an Israelite, would be able to go in and see it all happen and watch it unfold and hear it reported to you by those who had been there. And every one of those things were pointing to the grace of God and to the need of our souls. They had the blessing of God and His presence there among them. They had promises. From their youth, they were told the stories of, of God promising one who would come. From Genesis 3 on... God promised that there would be a seed, a descendant of the woman, who would come and undo the work of that serpent and the sin in the world. And these Israelites heard that promise over and over and over again. They had that as, as their blessing, as a gift of God to them. They had the patriarchs and the history of God working in the world and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then, chiefly of them all, they had the Christ from their own countrymen. He would go to them first. He would preach the message of grace to them. He would be the embodiment of all the things that had come before. They were the adopted sons of God. Here was the Son of God begotten in front of them. They would have the glory. Here was the one who was the radiance of God walking among them. They would have the covenants here is the one who was the answer to Abraham's walking among those broken animals. Christ Himself would be separated from His Father and from the Spirit on the cross saying the covenant of Abraham is fulfilled. Christ is the fulfillment and the expression of the law. He was the sum of the worship. He was the sacrifice that fulfilled all that the ones of the Old Testament had once offered. He was the answer to the promises. He was the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. He was the hope of the patriarchs. When Abraham was told, in you will be blessed all the world, here is the one who would bless all the families of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment. It's as if God were shining a light from heaven across Christ in time and casting the shadows back into the Old Testament. And each of these gifts of God to the Israelites were those shadows. Such that when the time came that Christ showed up, they would have said, we've seen your shadow. We knew what you would look like. We've seen your shape. We've looked at it for years. And now you're here. But what actually happened? 
Paul tells you himself. Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Before that he says, I'm anguished with unceasing anguish and great sorrow because these Israelites who had every one of these gifts were rejecting Christ. Every one of these good things, they had the, the environment in all of earth that was meant to prepare them for, for Christ and they, they still missed Him. In fact, the Pharisees who took the most pride in the gifts of God given to Israel were His most ardent enemies. Because when the one who showed up, who fulfilled all of these shadows, they saw Him and they said, this isn't the one we want. You see, what had happened was instead of seeing adoption and glory and covenants and law and worship and promises and these good gifts as gifts of God that were undeserved, instead they saw them and it made them self-sufficient and proud. We have the law of God. Therefore, we can please God in a way no one else can. We have the promises of God and the covenants. Therefore, we're better than the other nations. And it made them arrogant. And when God showed up, He demanded humility. He demanded faith. He demanded dependence. And they didn't want any part of it. In spite of the gifts they had been given and the environment in which they were given the message of grace that would be fulfilled in the Son of God, they didn't want any part of it. In spite of the gifts, they rejected God's salvation. And I want you to see that this is the nature of the human heart. That we're stubborn and persistent in our rebellion unless God changes the heart, unless He he turns it a different direction, that we are, are like those Israelites. And without Him doing something internally, it doesn't matter what externals you have. Now, I need you to understand that you all are church people. It means you have the same exposure these Israelites did. You have the promises held out before you week after week. You have the covenants brought to you. You have a description from the Word of God brought before you when we have the Lord's Supper and in baptism. You see the presence of God among you. You have these gifts. You're exposed to them. And the most dangerous thing that can happen to church people is that we can look at all that we have and go, I can do this. And then we become proud. And we think, I've got the commands of God. I can please God better than those people out there. I've got these gifts of God. It makes me special and superior to people who don't have them. And we've become, if we do that, the Pharisees. And we've rejected Christ. I want you to see how Paul thinks about those who are out there. Did you catch it? What does the Gospel direct us toward? He says... I wish I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for them. Now, I'll just confess. If God said, Scott, 
I will allow you to be cut off from me for the sake of first prayers. I'm sorry for y'all. I'm not ready for that. I love y'all. I'll do a lot of stuff. But I don't think I can do that one. Paul is here drinking in so deeply what Christ has done for him who was cut off, who was accursed for his people. But Paul has drunk that in so much that he's taken the same attitude. He's become Christ-like, at least right here. He didn't feel superior to them. He saw them and he saw their need and he said, it's like mine. These gifts didn't make him arrogant. They penetrated that hard heart and made him humble and made him faithful. How how does that happen? Two things, the promise of God and the choice of God. I'll go quick. Verse 6. It's not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's not that these gifts didn't do what they were supposed to do. It's that God wasn't saying, hey, just because you're a biological descendant of Abraham, you're in. He says there's a a true Israel that comes by promise. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. You remember the story of Isaac and his half-brother Ishmael? God had made a promise to Abraham and to Sarah that Abraham would have a son. He'd be the father of many nations, but they were old. They didn't see how that could happen. And so they imagined, perhaps God meant for you to have a son by one of my servants, Sarah says to him. And when you have that son, he'll be your heir. And so he has a son by Hagar, Ishmael. And it makes sense. It's strategic. It's Abraham trying to work out this salvation and this promise of God. But God is saying, no, that's not how my promise is going to be fulfilled. It won't be because you strategically achieve it. It won't be because you manufacture the steps and therefore have accomplished my promise. Here's how it will work. Your salvation, this covenant will be fulfilled because I give you out of death life. Hebrews says that Sarah's womb was as good as dead and God brought Isaac from it when she was 90 years old. And we've heard that story so much, but that's just as amazing then as it is now. And God gave a a promised son. And it's this promise that God has made that He is going to rescue people from their sins. And He's going to do it with a miracle. The miracle is that He goes into that heart that is stubborn in its rebellion and He breaks up the hard-heartedness and the defenses and He penetrates through them and He persuades your hearts to take hold of the gifts that we've just read about. To recognize all of these pointers that drive you to Christ and for you to bow your knee and say, I need Him. It's, it's a miracle that brings that about. And God does it in His people. All of the Israel that really is Israel. But it's not just a promise. It's, a, it's related to the choice of God. You see, if you look at Ishmael and Isaac... You say, okay, that makes sense. God wanted the natural son of Abraham and his wife. He says, well, 
Let me show you another example. Verse 10, And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You see, he, he goes to this, these twins who had the same environment, the same mom and dad, the same DNA. They were born. They lived in the same household. They heard the same sermons. They went through all of the same stuff. Now, they were their own men. As you who have children know, your children are very different. But before they had done anything, good or bad, God had chosen one over the other. His choice was the determination. When we read it, we hear this language, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that might bother me. That might bother you. Did God hate Esau? We find Jesus saying this in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There, hate doesn't seem to mean hostility and loathing. You have to hate your parents. You have to loathe them and be hostile towards your parents to follow Jesus. I don't think that's what it means. You have to loathe your own life and hate yourself. You can't even He says, unless you hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. It doesn't seem to mean hostility, but it means there's a choice. You must prefer Christ over everything else to be His disciple. And, and really, it seems to be comparative. You must love Christ so much that it makes what you, how you honor your parents look like hate. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor, and surely our parents are neighbors, so we're to love them as we love ourselves. But you must love Christ so much that the preference is clear. If the choice must be made, parents or Jesus, Jesus gets it every time to be a disciple. The same thing is going on here. It's not that God is saying, Esau, can't stand him. You know, he bugs me. He's saying, I love Jacob so much with my redeeming, rescuing love that I've set on him. Now, we went through Genesis pretty recently and we actually looked at Jacob a ton. Jacob doesn't really strike you as the kind of guy whom God would go, you got to look at him, he's great. Jacob was a wreck, a deceiver, a trickster, a con artist. He was a guy who played favorites among his family. You would never go to Jacob for family counseling. It was a wreck. He married four women. You wouldn't look at him and go, I hope my son turned out like Jacob. But God set his love on him so that you and I would know it isn't about what you do. It isn't about how you were just a little bit more attractive to God than somebody else. It isn't anything in you that God was looking down and goes, hey, I, I could use that person. They've got something. It is God who says, I'm going to demonstrate my grace for my glory by rescuing these people. And we go, okay, well, well why? And God doesn't answer our questions. He says, it's my choice. 
it can make God seem a, a little arbitrary. And I want to talk about that. I just have to wait till another week. What I want you to really catch is what this means for your salvation is that it was God's idea before you were born, before He laid the foundations of the world, it was God's idea to rescue you. And He isn't surprised by what you're struggling with. He isn't surprised by how much progress you've made. He knew you. And He said, I want to rescue you. And so if nothing else... Here's what you do. You bow your knee to God and say, I know that my heart couldn't change unless you did it. So change my heart. I I know that this salvation was your idea, so give me confidence in it. I know that your salvation is good because you planned it from beginning to end. And you did this. There's a physician, Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane who uh, performed a pretty radical surgery on the 15th of February, 1921. Uh, He was a guy who wanted to move away from the ether that they used to cause people to have general anesthesia to use local anesthesia, and had recently developed a chemical known as Novocaine. And he thought it would be good and useful in surgeries. But no one trusted it. And so he couldn't find either a hospital to let him do it or particularly a patient who would say, I'll volunteer. And finally when he got a patient who would volunteer who needed a surgery, an appendectomy, one that Dr. Kane had done over 4,000 times, he did it. He laid on the OR table, injected himself with Novocaine, and performed the operation on himself. It was pretty convincing. Surgery took 30 minutes, and he was out before the end of the week. And that was when they had to do the big, long incision. Amazing. You see, what I want you to see from Dr. Kane is, is we tend to think that's the way our hearts will work. I just need to do a little tweaking that I can do on my own. But the gospel says differently. No matter what you're exposed to, no matter what you use, there aren't any tools that will help you fix your hearts. You're not dealing with the appendix, but the very core of who you are. And the only thing that will rescue you is God's promise and God's choice. And so the the thing to do is to come to Him and say, fix my heart. God is powerful and able to do it. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, help us reject the idea that we are self-sufficient and that we are better than others. Help us uh, take hold of the idea that it is Your love and Your sovereign power that penetrates our hearts and we don't know how promise and choice all together works but we're going to cast ourselves on your mercy and say fix our hearts please for we can't do it we're utterly dependent on you and and the truth is we'll know that if we come to you asking you to fix our hearts because you made a promise and you chose us already we pray for this in Christ's name amen I want you to turn in your hymnals to 469.